Hello, this is Rachel Lynn, and you are listening to Upstage Left. I'm so glad to be recording again after a brief hiatus, and especially thrilled to have Joshua William Gelb as my first guest. Josh is the creator and co-artistic director of Theater in Quarantine, which presents live theatrical experiences from Josh's East Village Closet. Co-helmed by Katie Rose McLaughlin, Theater in Quarantine presents a new show every three weeks and is free to watch on YouTube. If you haven't had a chance to check them out, just head over to their YouTube channel to watch pieces that have been recorded over the past year. It's really nice for me to be doing this again. I am finally feeling optimistic about the state of theater and the world. Thank you so much to everybody who has reached out to me throughout quarantine, sending nice messages and notes. I really appreciate it and it, and it inspires me and helps me to keep going. Uh, in this episode, Josh and I talk about how he manages his insane schedule to create a whole new show from scratch every three weeks, and I'm incredibly inspired by his work ethic and dedication, and so I feel like it's so fitting to come back with this guest. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe or follow us on Instagram. Here is Joshua William Gallup. Hi, Rachel. This is a normal, yeah, I'm like, so I haven't done this in a long time, so I feel very nervous right now. When was the last time you did an interview? Oh, like, I want to say at the end of the summer, so. Whoa. It's been a while, I've taken a little break, but I'm so glad you're the first person I've talked to in a long time. Upstage left is back. (laughs) Um, How are you, man? I'm good, I'm good. It's, um, it's been almost a year of this and that's dawning on me every day i know the last time i saw you was like the closing was it the unofficial closing of tumacho oh my gosh yeah you're um, right <laughs> i randomly went to like that party and you were sir behind the bar at, in the secret bowling alley is it a secret bowling alley or is it like publicized well it's a secret bowling alley so uh we're happy to say secret bowling alley but we shouldn't say where said secret bowling alley is uh but uh but yeah that's right uh that's the saddest loss for me personally of of the pandemic era is that we just don't get to hang out in the secret bowling alley anymore I know, because you had just, we were talking about, like, names for that bar, and we got somewhere. Didn't didn't you guys come up with... Oh, see, now I don't even remember. We I were know, so it, close. It had religious overtones. I can't remember either. <laughs> I had drank a lot of whiskey that night. Uh, as we all do at Secret Bowling Alley Bars. Uh, <laughs> but it was great seeing you then. Uh, that was a, a simpler time. It truly was. And so much has changed since then. Dude, you're so prolific. So we went from secret bowling alley to theater in quarantine. How how long did it take you to move into that impulse and create the first thing? Well, I mean, everything shut down in middle March. Uh, all the theaters closed. And I think I spent a week you know, mostly just drinking myself to sleep and watching a lot of Cirque du Soleil on YouTube. And yeah, weird, right? Um, That was my binge of choice. And then I just started 
like doing a lot of work around the house, like odd jobs, cleaning. And I started cleaning out my closet. And this is like a week, a week and a half in. And I realized that my closet had the same aspect ratio as my iPhone. And so, uh, you know, my next big task was, was to gut it and convert it into a white box. And I mean, this is when all the Zoom readings were starting. And, uh, you know, I come from a, a sort of physical theater background and just wasn't particularly interested in watching Zoom readings. I wanted to like feel a performance and a physical performance and the whole body and design and all the things we were losing. Uh, and so very quickly, we made the theater in quarantine. I called Katie Rose McLaughlin and, you know, we've, we've just been expanding the amount of collaborators since and started out pre-recorded and now we're going live every three weeks. Wow. So impressive. It's so, so impressive. Thanks. <laughs> I also love that you're cleaning out your closet. Like I hope I, physically, and I hope also uh, while we all were doing that, like metaphorically, I guess. In the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm very lucky. So I live in the East Village, um, and I happen to have two closets. Uh, I live alone. This is probably important to like the origin story of the thing because I don't have anyone else here to like occupy me. Oh. So this is all just like an avoidance issue. Like I don't want to deal with myself, so I make theater in my closet. Um, <laughs> but so I didn't have to move my clothes. My clothes are fine. They're all they're, they're all there. This was just where I kept like winter sweaters and blankets and my air conditioner. I love that you have like an, you're like, it's fine. The clothes are fine. I'm sure getting tons of emails like, yeah, but where are your clothes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So many people are concerned. <laughs> oh man. I, yeah, that's incredible. You're, I mean, I met you in 2014, I think. And the first of your works that I was introduced to was Dumb Show at the Flea. Yeah. Your there name? we go. I remember because you were doing you were doing um, uh, uh, women at the time, right? Was it girls? No, what was it called? It was yes. called women. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Takes women. Yeah. Yeah. Stacked like see, I remember that particular time of serials was a very like competitive but like amazing artist coming through. That was my introduction to serials, and it was a really incredible moment because yeah, there were just great artists like in that basement. Yeah. And Dumb Show was uh, a serial, a short play series that was completely silent. So each mm -hmm. week was in, it was kind of anthology style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We just did like a silent bit. I mean, I think we only had three goes of it, maybe. Which was on the man. <laughs> because our first was killer, but then we sort of realized that it was like doing an anthology serial is tricky because like with the same reason of any anthology show, like how do you get your audience hooked every time as if it's like the first time? Uh, so, but yeah, that first piece was, um, was really amazing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> What was it called? I can't even remember what it was called. That was so long ago. The cereal itself? Or... Yeah, it involved a lot of cake, though. It, and... Yeah, the cake batter, red cake batter. Yes, and, and Alex Gould and Christina Pitter and just, like, awesome, awesome people. Uh, yeah, uh, but that's true. It was, that's how we met, in the, in, the basement, in the basement of the flea. In the basement of the flea. And I, and I feel like it's really stuck with me because like, 
I just it's such a running theme in your work this like physical theater silent film kind of vibe when did you start making that a part of your work and oh wow I don't know um it's like I've always been excited by clowning and I was raised watching old silent movies. So Chaplin and uh, Buster Keaton and the Marx Brothers. So like that whole old cinema is something my parents like was sharing with me from from the get go. Uh, and I, you know, studied clown and commedia in college. And uh, so that was something I was always just excited to play with. And I loved having that in my tool belt. I never did like extensive study. Um, though I've worked with like John Levin, who is an actor and uh, also director who I work with um, uh, on our piece, Hunger Artist, like he did Lecoq and all of those like incredible programs. And uh, so I'm, I'm just sort of an amateur at it, but I, you know, uh, but it's definitely become part of my practice and has been really essential in the closet as we're sort of rebuilding what it means to perform in a digital space. Uh, it's been it's been really key figuring out like kind of removing text for a little while, which we did for months. We didn't t talk at all. We just, you know, tried to to move and dance and and find what it means to have a, a body in a, in a space that is both like extremely tactile, which is is the benefit of the closet, um, but also totally digital and you know non-existent. Mm. Yeah. Are your parents theater people or entertainers in some way? Oh, uh, well, my mother, yeah, I mean, they both were involved in theater. Uh, like back in the 70s, they were trying to slug it out in New York. Uh, my dad was a stage manager. My mom was an actor. They kind of gave it up uh, around when I was born, a little before that. Uh, there are stories. There's a mythology to it, and uh, and my mother uh, directed and choreographed shows at the local high school, and my dad built all the sets, and so that's what I grew up around. So, did you kind of know from an early age that you were going to be a theater artist? Yeah, to their great resentment. Hmm. Yeah, they hated it, but they've supported me. <laughs> Where did you grow up? I grew up in Port Washington, uh, Long Island, so oh. just outside the city. So we were always seeing, you know, Broadway shows. And and that's like when you're exposed to that caliber of work, uh, you know, at a young age, it, it obviously leaves an imprint. And then you went to NYU. Yeah, did NYU uh, at Playwrights Horizons Theater School. Uh, and then, you know, bummed around New York for a couple of years before getting my uh, master's at Carnegie Mellon uh, in directing. Did you have a good time at NYU? Oh yeah, I mean, NYU is, I mean, it's huge, right? It's it's a, an enormous like factory in, in many ways, but at the same time, uh, it's incredible to be in this city at that age uh, and yeah, you know, say what you will about, um, about that type of training, but I, I kind of feed off of a relentless, uh, all-encompassing energy, and um, and playwrights really did that for me. Like it was really exciting to be constantly, like at all hours of the day, you know, working on projects and uh, and directing, acting, uh, stage managing, designing. You know, you're, you've got your fingers in everything there, and uh, that's. 
kind of a, probably an essential piece of of what we're doing right now. I mean, I always tell people that that basically I'm I'm like reliving undergrad here. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, every three weeks is a new live piece, and they're so elaborate. The rehearsal process must be intense. Uh, yeah, it, it it is. It's um, <laughs> uh, you know, so. For a long time, we were actually doing every two weeks, which was even more intense. So now we like to say we're taking taking it easy. Uh, but um, every three weeks now is devoted to an individual piece. It gets to load in. It can take over the closet and and be fully designed. Um, the rehearsals, you know, we try to be good to one another because, I mean, I think that's what we're all learning right now in this, particularly in this hiatus, right, is we're all reevaluating what the practices were before COVID uh, that maybe weren't healthy as theater artists. And so we're trying to constantly be questioning like, okay, maybe we don't need to do, you know, 10 hour days, but it's still, it's like, it's an involved process and, and it's all remote. So we work off of Zoom almost, you know, on, on very rare occasions, someone has to come over and drop something off. I think only on one occasion, uh, did we have a, a sound designer who had to be in the room to call the show uh, masked? Uh, but otherwise, everything is remote. And we've really been lucky that we've been able to like negotiate the technology and find ways to um, to actually navigate remote processes in a pretty successful way. But yeah, it's, it is fast for certain. But that's what's exciting about it. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Where is like the bulk of the work? Or I'm, I mean, it's all over, but how did you come to the idea? I mean, just the videography, the technology is so impressive. How did you even think about this? The frame should move and turn and I can do all this stuff. Like, how did that come into your brain? I mean, well, firstly, so in grad school, I studied with um, Marianne Weems, the, the director of the Builders Association. It's a company that's sort of an offshoot of Worcester Group. And, uh, and they are just all about uh, video projection and uh, how technology can be integrated into live performance on stage. And, uh, and so I've assisted her and, and worked with that company a little bit. And and actually my grad school uh, experience was really devoted to that uh, particular exploration, which is when I was first introduced to Isadora, which is the, uh, the software that we use to do all the video manipulation here. Uh, and Isadora, again, was kind of a, a piece of software that was developed uh, with dance in mind mostly, but again, like how to bring uh, projection in a really integrated way to live performance on stage. And what's, you know, what I learned in you know March a year ago now, is uh, you know what we ended up doing is we just sort of reversed everything and now we're just bringing the te you know uh, the live performance to the technology, and that's been the sort of ethos of the entire project. Like, how do we actually not get hung up on theater as it was and what we'd rather be doing, and actually try to meet the technology? on its own terms and say, okay, like what are the stories that like need to be told using this tech? Like what can this tech do that we can't do on stage? And so that's where really the like, the idea of these gravity shifting, uh, you know, uh, motions and shifts in perspective came from, uh, because, you know, this is, 
you know, we all dream of like working on giant sets that like spin and do crazy things. Again, I was, I was smoking up and watching a lot of Cirque du Soleil in March. Um, but, but you know, that's where that came from. And I mean, truly there, there was, I guess what, what ended up happening is I would improvise in the closet a lot. And then I just throw it into a editing software and just sort of, uh, start spinning it around and seeing what would happen. Like, oh, it looks like I'm on the ceiling. Oh, it looks like, you know, I'm floating, like that Fred Astaire uh, routine. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was just like kind of mind blowing. And I brought in Katie Rose, uh, who's the co-creative director of Theater in Quarantine, and uh, John Levin, who I worked with on Hunger Artist, mm-hmm. uh, because both of them have clown uh, experience of their own. And was like, hey, let's try some stuff. And they literally like flipped their computers on its side. And we spent a whole rehearsal trying to see what would happen if, if we made the wall the floor. And, uh, and so that was just like the very beginning. And, and from there, we've just gone further and further. Wow, that's incredible. That's so amazing. Did you ever feel any hesitation where you're like, nope, this is it, this is what I'm doing, it's clear? Uh, Well, it was certainly like a relief to have a project, right? I mean, that's what I, I feel deeply uh, privileged right now that that I'm uh, able to be working uh, and able to give people the opportunity to work. Uh, You know, we're always figuring out the nuts and bolts of that. But, but right now, you know, the, the whole field's been decimated and everyone's struggling. So the fact that I've been able to uh, develop an actual practice, you know, even though it's out of, I mean, literally a closet and you can see it's, it is a, a closet right there. It's, I know this is a podcast, so I'll, I'll describe it. Yeah, uh, it is, it's literally a, a white box that is four feet wide by eight feet tall, but really only two feet deep. And that's what's kind of hidden when you watch the videos. Uh, it looks a lot deeper, uh, but it's not. It's, are those it's an ex- the doors that are coming out? Is that why it looks so? Yeah, yeah. Oh. The doors give it a real forced perspective. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's it. It's a really tiny footprint. Uh, but the thing is, you know, and I mean, we're all trapped in boxes right now in various shapes and sizes. But uh, but what I learned is is that it doesn't matter how small the footprint. Like, there's potential and possibility, and particularly when you get the digital involved, suddenly, like, you can do all sorts of things. Mm. After you finished school, you went to directing for your MFA. Did you feel like mm-hmm. directing was the direction you wanted to go, or? you still feel very much like a performer first like do you have a hierarchy in your artistry i mean i feel like we all start as performers right like that's Mm -hmm. that's the the impulse the the itch um uh, gosh i was telling someone uh katie rose uh uh, works with uh students who are applying to conservatory programs as kind of a uh, you know job and so we're always talking about these poor kids going through these like relentless, ruthless application processes. And, and I say, you know, the funny thing is I actually like pivoted to directing in many ways because I, I had a sense that it was the easier way into NYU mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, who applies as a director? Uh, the pool is just a, immediately smaller. Mm. So, uh, so that was... I mean, obviously something I had considered, I had directed a little bit, 
but it became the focus of the work. And then in particular, like you get to New York uh, or get to New York, you you're in New York, you're, you've graduated and, and sure. I started, I performed in, in a couple pieces. I performed in um, just the worst production of Merrily. We roll along. I think there ever was. Who did you I'm play? S- <laughs> uh, I played Charlie Kringis. Uh, their footage. There's not. There, thank, thankfully, there's no footage. Uh, there are a ton of reviews, though, and it's it is. Uh, that's a big role. I mean, yeah, sure. You know, I love musicals. I mean, that's the thing that that I, I try to keep getting into the closet is more and more musicals is what I say. But uh, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, so I, I've started performing, but you kind of get tired with with the work that's being done. And you say, gosh, I wish, I wish this could be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just, I shifted to directing more and more uh, just to make the work that I'd be excited to see and experience and or be part of. Uh, and then recently, particularly after grad school, I started acting more and more in my own projects, mostly because you're self-producing and it is a, you know, a salary, one less salary to deal with. Yeah, so that, so I, I got back into performing a little bit more, and now it's I, I don't consider myself a performer, and yet now it's what I do entirely, and um, particularly we bring in like choreographers and 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 other guest artists, and and I really am like just the performer again, mm-hmm. uh, and it's really strange and surreal, uh, and particularly now that that people start. Uh, now that I'm dancing more, you know, what I'm really, the biggest hurdle is, is getting past this idea of me as a dancer. Yikes. I was noticing that when I was watching the videos, I'm like, he's so balletic. Do you have dance training or mime training? You must. You know, just dance here and there. You know, you grow up with a, with a choreographer for a mom. Um, but uh, but I, I took a little bit of training, but not, not intensively. <laughs> uh, before the pandemic, the year before the pandemic, I was bizarrely taking ballet class just to, I guess, just get in my body or stay in shape or whatever. Um, it felt like a good use of time. Uh, and I'm really glad I did, because actually, as it turned out, it was it was a great use of time. Um, and and it's, yeah, it's wild now, because sure, I, I like, I have a little ballet, but I think in the next piece, I'm going to have to do a little tap dancing and... And we had a, a choreographer from France who who specializes in Bouteau. And, you know, I'm like finding myself in, in rooms with these artists who are just like staggering in, in their ability and, and their knowledge. And, you know, I'm just playing catch up the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the good thing is you're alone, so you can't really mess it. I mean, anything you do is the choreography. That's what's terrifying, though. Imagine being in a dance class when where there's like no one but you. So like you really can't fake it at any point. Like at it's like these two hour long rehearsals are relentless. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And then for I am uh, I'm sending you the sacred face. Do mm-hmm. you just like learn all the music? Do you memorize the? text are you looking at a teleprompter i have so many questions uh you know i can't do teleprompters uh and I'm, I, it's funny it's funny that you bring up teleprompters because you know again we work so quickly i liken it more to like television production than, than theater ultimately mm-hmm. particularly snl 
which again has just like the turnaround is relentless and and of course what they do on snl is they read their cue cards but we can't do that because the eye line is just it, it like totally disassociates the performance from from the audience but again i, I I can't memorize all this stuff. So we actually, and from the very beginning, feed all the text into my ears. Oh, uh, and that's how I, that's how I learn, not learn it. That's how I perform it. It also works because that's how we time the entire, uh, all of the technology and the, the digital queuing uh, is tied to my track. Mm. So that's how we do that with Sacred Face, which was our, our uh, drag musical about uh, Mother Teresa. Heather Christian approached us, kind of cold called us when, when I was again going through a, a moment where I was like, I need musicals in this closet. And I was posting about that on Facebook and Heather That's reached well. out, uh, as we all do, right? That's we need awesome. a music. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, Heather came and was like, how about a new musical written by me? <laughs> and, and you don't say no to Heather Christian. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, Heather kind of offered a couple ideas, which she called her orphan babies. And those were uh, just shows that either theaters weren't interested in or she felt like didn't have a place on stage, either because they were too short or or who knows what. There was just less less of an impulse to, to get them written. And so we said, sure, let's do the Mother Teresa one. And within a month or two, she had this entire piece written. It's staggering the ability and just like the music is just so good. From the beginning, she want what, what was that's that? Stacked. Every lyric is, you're like, oh, my brain. I needed to stop and go back and listen and watch again and be like, okay, what was that phrase? It's so captivating. And I know. I just spent, I just spent hours the other day uh, updating our, our closed captioning finally. And uh, it's just like sitting there with that those lyrics it's unreal what uh, yeah anyway she's great you should interview her because she's the best um but yeah so she wanted it to be a, a lip sync piece which uh was cool because we were playing with drag and that like all felt kind of of a part of that world and um but, you know we just ended up having to well well first off first i thought that would be easy i was like great we'll just lip sync it I don't have to learn it. And then I realized, holy, can I curse? Can I say, yeah. holy shit? Yeah, great. Holy shit. I, I have to actually know this score probably better than if I was just singing it. Mm. Uh, because I have to know her every single, you know, shift in voice and like her rhythm and Heather does just does whatever rhythms Heather wants. Uh, so it's, um, it was, I did have to learn it as it turns out. Um, <laughs> we ended up having a two feed system, which is something I've, I've learned that, that I, I, we learned from other drag queens, where I would have the entire track 0.5 seconds in my head before I was supposed to sing it or not lip sync it. And then I have it in time with the, with the performance. So that way I could hear Heather's like tempo and you know whatever idiosyncrasies of her speech and have that in my head so that 0.5 seconds later I could lip sync it with her. Oh, okay, I see. So in in your earbud it's 0.5 seconds faster but but it's playing. You don't hear both at the same time. I heard both at the same time. What? Yeah. That's insane. It's insane. <laughs> uh it's not the worst it's ever been, 
Uh, actually, once you get used to it, like that was pretty doable. The worst was uh, this piece we did called The Seventh Voyage of Egon Tishi, where I had to do scenes with like upwards of 26 versions of myself. Uh, except it, it moved very quickly. I had to, you know, there was a lot of pre-recorded scenes uh, layered on top of one another, and then one of me would be live. Except I didn't have time to clean up all of the audio and make sure that all of the scenes would be like, I'd have a clean ear feed. So I would have 26 versions of the scene playing out simultaneously in my ear, trying to find out what I'm actually responding to. And it's hilarious. If you if you watch that one, it's it's a true delight imagining the chaos that's inside my head at that time. <laughs> oh my god, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. Do you have did you have experience in drag prior to Sacred Face? I can't say I did. Not at all. Um, and now we brought in uh, Dito Van Rygersberg, who is Martha Graham Cracker, and also you know pig iron uh, so dito came in as our sort of drag drag dramaturg dragaturg whatever you want to call it and dito like coached me quite a bit not just in performance but in in makeup and everything we ended up getting a makeup actually someone who could apply it because but that was essential absolutely but also essential in that so much of what Dito ended up doing was just like saying, like liberating us to to go over the top and not feel like we were commenting on it. That actually the commenting on it is the thing. And really, yeah, really allowed us to just play. Um, so no, I don't, I don't have any experience though. I do have good legs, so that's <laughs> helpful. <laughs> that is helpful. But there are other moments in theater and quarantine where you do you like wear women's clothing it's become much more frequent but it's mostly after sacred face i think i don't know uh but yeah yeah we've been doing a lot more of it now is that an impulse that you have that has that has been in your work earlier or is this like a new thing is gender a theme that you you know i i grew up i grew up uh, as as that kid who just loves musicals, right? So of course it's something I, I've contended with my whole life, but uh, but now it hasn't necessarily been something I was tracking. I, I think in many ways, you know, this is the funny thing about theater and quarantine, right? Like it's it seems like it's me alone in a box, but we're like bringing in so many artists to to work and to generate material, and I think. You know, Heather was the one who said drag at the top and, and we say yes, you know, here. That's our kind of MO. And to find out how we can do it well, to bring in the right people. So in many ways, I think a lot of people are, you know, are bringing their own interests. And that's, you know, everyone has to contend with my, my the optics of my body. You know, I'm a white cis man. So what ends up happening, you know, we bring in we bring in artists who are really interested in dealing with gender. So we deal with gender and that becomes the box that becomes the shape of the performance. And I'm excited to go there. Mm. Yeah, it has been characteristic of the work. Oh, man. Well, I do know I just got this amazing pair of go-go boots for the show next week. So that's oh, that's wow. going to be uh, pretty exciting as well. You should see the leotard, too. But um <laughs> I was impressed by that golden dress. I just watched the one where you're in this golden backless dress. I'm like, oh, I want that. 
Well, that is a that is a fabulous dress. First off, that was a piece we made with Karen Olivo and Erin Ortman, and uh, it was, uh, I believe, the dress she wore to the opening of West Side Story, like the one a couple of years ago. So. Yeah, pretty phenomenal. I still have it hanging here. I haven't put it on in a bit, but I, I yeah, they're gorgeous. <laughs> and so what do you, in response to what you just said, you know, you, you said you say yes. When do you say no? No happens, uh, but never for content reasons. No happens solely because the technology. It's something I warn collaborators about you know, we do short form, we do long form. Our long forms are not that long. They're about 30 minutes tops. And the long forms are the one that's, that really get to take over. Uh, and I always warn collaborators on those that, that we are <laughs> working with tech that is unpredictable and that sometimes wants to do its own thing. Sometimes my computer is constantly, you know, freezing and breaking. And so there is a point when no happens. And I try to tell everyone that like, we will attempt every idea, but at a certain moment, usually about a week out from the performance in these three week, you know, timeframes, no starts to occur. Mostly because like, you know, I'll spend a full day programming a scene. And even if there's the best idea in the world, I'm not gonna spend a whole other day reprogramming that scene so but that being said i try to warn people like to always share the idea because we don't know what's easy and what isn't until we actually share the idea sometimes if someone's like yeah but like this would be better if it was all blue turns out that's the easiest thing in the world to do i can make everything blue no problem but maybe you say it would be better if this was shifted an inch over i will i will just drop it and leave because that <laughs> is the hardest thing ever. But again, like what's the difference between these ideas? Uh, so you have to share everything. You have to always keep the conversation and the communication open, but no does occur. <laughs> have you always self-produced? Gosh, I wish I didn't have to. Uh, <laughs> is that true? I don't believe you. <laughs> um, no is, uh, yeah, no, what? Self-producing, no. Um, yeah, I've mostly self-produced. There have been projects where, you know, I've, I've gone to schools and, and those are just always absolutely lovely. Uh, it is so nice having an institution behind you. And more and more with Theatre in Quarantine, we have had the support from La Mama, Culture Hub, Theatre Me Too, Invisible Dog. Uh, we've got a piece coming up with New George's coming uh, in like that one's in April. Uh, and... And so that's really wonderful. But yeah, it's been a lot of self-production and that's, it grinds you down. Like, yes, you have control and yes, you can make the work you want to make, but like the fundraising, the, the, like these year long, years long processes, mm -hmm. like three years getting something up is exhausting and like not conducive to creativity. Right. Like, I feel like that's what I learned in the past year is I, I just would rather be constantly and maybe we all do like constantly making constantly like experimenting in, instead of like, like, sure, maybe I've got a slot like my last piece uh, prior to the pandemic was was this piece called Jazz Singer, 
uh, which I did at Abrams. And that was in residence there. And I love Abrams. But it was like a, a giant project that took me three and a half years to get off the ground. And that's three and a half years of my life devoted to one piece. And I guess, you know, it's over so quickly. And you, know, you spend all this time making this, making this work. And then you have like, what, four weeks of rehearsal and, you know, a, a two, three week run. And maybe the critics come and maybe the critics don't come and maybe the critics come and they don't like it. And maybe you don't get all the invites out you want because you're tired. And and then it's over so quickly. And I guess to me, that's just like not a way to make anything. I mean, you can make something of value, but it's not a way to like make anything that will allow you to keep building on the work you're doing. And so that's what's just been really rewarding about the closet is it's like a healthy way of thinking about theater. There's always something else this review isn't going to kill me. Mm -hmm. and by the time you did Jazz Singer, you had already self-produced tons of other work. So it's not like it was a surprise to you that, you know, <laughs> the process and all of that. What kind of keeps you going? And like, you're like, okay, I'm doing it. I'm going to make this show. It's going to take all this time. I'm going to raise the money. How do you sustain yourself mentally, emotionally? I don't know if you do. <laughs> I mean, you just do it, right? Because like, if you're lucky enough to get the slot in the first place, right? And that's what we're all fighting for. We're all fighting for little bits of real estate. And that's what I think is so wonderful. Like finally you get eight square feet of real estate and that's all I needed as it turns out. But we're fighting for these stages. We're trying to get these slots in these seasons. And, you know, you're lucky enough to, to get a slot two, three years out. And I mean, who knows? My biggest fear is that it'll even be worse when we come back because we're gonna be like dealing with the backlog of the past year, of mm. course, you know? So you, you put your nose to the grindstone. Is that a phrase? There's something about a grindstone and something yeah. about a nose. That sounds right. Sure. Yeah. And, and you just grit your teeth and you go. And you hope that you believe in something enough. You hope your collaborators believe in it enough. But yeah, I think I, sp I spend more time questioning the work in a process like that and questioning the value of that kind of process than I do now. Mm. When you say questioning the work, what does that usually entail? Mm. Oh, I mean, there's just so much time for doubt, right? Yeah. There's so much time to doubt that what you're doing is the right choice right or the the most interesting choice if you want to say that yeah. like i think about it with design a lot right now you know you walk into a theater and you have your designers maybe and you, and you think okay like this is what we could do and then like 20 other ideas happen and they're all equally amazing and what we've all been taught or at least particularly this gets back to my like playwrights horizons training right is uh okay, how do you whittle down all of those amazing ideas down to the one idea that tells the story the right way? Mm -hmm. And I guess I, I always feel so sad about those 19 other ideas that didn't get used. And I spend so much time doubting that like the choice we're, that we've chosen, the decision we've made is the right one. And now what's great is we can have 19, 20, 30 ideas and we can say, yeah, 
that's great for this piece. That'll be great for that piece. That we have no idea what we'll do with, but we'll probably do it in four months. Uh, and so like there, there's depth to how we're using the space and we don't feel like we have to cram it all into uh, you know, one production, or we don't feel that that sense of loss that 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 goes with like, oh, you know, what if? Yeah, yeah. So speaking of like when when things get back mm -hmm. and back into things, you've built theater in quarantine. What are your what are your hopes or you know expectations for theater out of quarantine? Oh, it's gonna be a slow go, you know. But I, I hope, I mean, there's some really wonderful conversations going on, firstly, in like a, in a, in a macro sense, dear white American theater, some really good conversations happening. So I hope there is, I hope that has more impact than I fear it will, right? I actually am a little bit positive in the short term, because I think when we come back, for instance, like who knows those poor nonprofits, they're all going to be backlogged. It's going to be very tricky for them. But that being said, Broadway is going to be interesting because, or at least this is my theory, like finally they have to cater to the tri-state area. Like they can't rely on tourists. So I think we're going to see a lot of shut, like big production, long running productions shutting down eventually. And I think uh, there's going to be work that is much edgier. And I think Slave Play, of course, is like a really good stepping stone to this. I think we're going to see edgy work for a short while on Broadway because they're just going to have, like, they can't rely on a long run. Everything's going to go be shorter runs. And that's exciting. I really hope that happens. I think digital theater, I have no idea. It's not going away. And I think with theater and quarantine, we're going to stick it out and keep playing in this playground. We're trying to figure out what a, a maybe a more hybrid version that, that has a live in-person element, but also has the digital element might be. But digital theater is not going away. Who knows what that'll become? My biggest fear is that it just becomes sort of a marketing tool for in-person performance as opposed to like an art form itself. Mm. But that being said, you know, we're just in the earliest stages of this thing. It is new. It is, you know, we get this question all the time, which is like, is it theater? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, originally I was defensive about that. But now I'm kind of excited to say maybe it's not. You know, it's theatrical for certain. But it's, you know, we're wading into a new territory and I'm, I'm sure we'll come up with some sort of more formalized version of what it will be, but I'm just really excited to be here and now in a moment where it is totally amorphous and anything is possible. Yeah. That's good. I need, I need the optimism. So I'm like living for that optimism. Yeah, I think I can try to be optimistic about the future. I think there's good things that are going to happen. I think it's going to be very difficult, obviously, um, you know, but... I think there's going to be some some real positive outcomes from this extraordinarily, like, difficult time. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So just like looking back at the complete oeuvre, is that the word? Is that how you pronounce it? I'm sure. <laughs> I just like that there are so many vowels in a row. Oeuvre. Uh, of your work, there's kind of like a running theme. I feel like aesthetically, if, you know, a lot of your source material is 
from the 1800s, you know, going back like a hunger artist, Kafka. And Theater in Quarantine also has that like surrealist feel sometimes. What, I guess this is a two part question. Like mm-hmm. when you went, when you started out in undergrad, did you have a sense that this was kind of, these were kind of the worlds you were going to be creating? And then the second part of the question is about like legacy, you know? I feel like so many of the your source material are about the legacies of these other artists. And is that something mm. to think about with your own work? Oh, I love that. Whoa. I think there's probably two sides of this question of like the 1800s and the turn of the century. Mm. Um, one of which is, you know, I love Shakespeare. Don't get me wrong, but I've never directed a Shakespeare ever. And... I'm, I'm sure we're going to do it. We'll do it in the closet at some point. It's like the great, you know, whatever challenge, um, our white whale. But, uh, but I, you know, there's something exciting about the experimentation that happens in theater around the, the 18th century into the 19th. I mean, not only in terms of like your Ibsen Chekhov sort of advent of realism and naturalism, but also... Um, the experimental theater that's occurring at that time, the Dada, surrealists, all of that. Um, So obviously that's something I tapped into, particularly the expressionists, um, very young. I like to say that that when I finally read Beckett in high school, that just ruined me uh, for life. Um, So there is that, obviously, and that's just like the theater I respond to. But but there's a, a sort of flipped side to that question and I think this is where a, a lot of uh, a lot of the work that I had been doing pre-pandemic comes from, which is is that uh, it, it also coincides with the emergence of American performance and uh, an American identity of of performance. So I've been obsessed, for instance, with the Black Crook, which is the the so-called first American musical from 1866. And, you know, I like to argue that 1866 is around and about when when we sort of identify a, um, a like, a legacy of pop American art uh, on a really massive country national scale. And so that's sort of like a, a mythology that I'm always interested in interrogating, like what this mega, what this trashy mega musical that's like barely even a musical, it's barely a play. It was just like four hours of of a hundred some odd performers, mostly women in in like flesh colored tights, like hanging from trapezes. It, it like absolute ridiculous spectacle, um, but it ran everywhere, and it was like absolutely, and it, and it was revived every couple of years for decades. And so, in in that respect, it it does give us this sense of not just Broadway, but what eventually becomes Hollywood. It eventually becomes, you know, the internet, frankly. Uh, and so that's something that always excited me is, is like unpacking these mythologies about American theater and trying to explore then like the larger question of, of what that speaks to us now. Like, how is that relevant to us? Uh, so Jazz Singer was another instance of that in the twenties where I was just like, okay, so we have this Jew in blackface and it's the first talkie, supposedly, and it like takes the world by storm again. What actually is the the larger narrative that's going on here? Uh, is it an entirely racist narrative? 
Is it a narrative about assimilation and appropriation and ultimately atonement, uh, given that it takes place at Yom Kippur? So like that was, again, like a sort of mythology that I was just always interested in. I guess you say that you use the word legacy and I use the word mythology because uh, I'm always interested in the way these these formative myths of our of America's uh, entertainment world of entertainment speak to us now and or don't. So, yeah. Wow. Thanks, Josh. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> gosh, <laughs> I'm so glad you're doing this again. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be doing it again, too. That was Joshua William Gelb. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, check out Theater in Quarantine on YouTube. And stay tuned for future episodes. Have a great day.